Hello, everybody, and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 1.3, The Anglo-Spanish War. Last time, we discussed the changing political environment in the 16th century in England, as the nation went through Henry VIII and into Elizabeth I. We spent a lot of time discussing how, especially during the reign of Elizabeth, pressures from a changing religious landscape posed a constant risk to the English monarchy, which finally boils over into war in 1585 between Spain and England. This week, we're going to look at that war, specifically in regards to the most famous battle of the Anglo-Spanish War, the defeat of the Spanish Armada. We're going to look at the events that led to the Anglo-Spanish War, a conflict that would last for nearly 20 years before finally ending in 1604. We are going to talk about the major players in the war and what objectives they had. We are finally going to look at the details of the Spanish Armada and discuss how did the English score such a key victory. To wrap up this week, I'm going to take some time to discuss the importance of that English victory. Now, I had originally planned for this episode to be a supplement, outside the main narrative of the show. However, once I got going on the topic, I decided that this battle does deserve its place in our story. Understanding it is going to give you a more complete picture of the scene on the eve of the first colonies. In fact, the end of the Anglo-Spanish War came just three years before the settlement of Jamestown. The defeat of the Spanish Armada, just 19 years before that. For the first settlers, this war was a current event. It's not history for them. And the relationship between the Spanish and the English crowns are going to be so important when we look at the situation in North America at the beginning of the English colonial period. And we're going to see that reflected as the first English colony sets up with a Spanish threat in mind. The defeat of the Spanish Armada today is portrayed as a legendary battle. The story is one of how a scrappy underdog English army defeated the mighty Spanish navy, which was sailing the most sophisticated armada in history to that point. The effects of the victory have been listed as the reason for the decline of the Spanish Empire and the rise of the English Empire, and it's often portrayed as the reason that the English were able to establish colonies in the Americas. How much of this is a reality versus English propaganda, though? In so many ways, the victory over the Spanish Armada is viewed in the same light as the people in the United States view the victory in the Revolution. A huge victory under implausible odds. Were the odds, however, really that implausible for the English? Plus, what was the effect of that victory? Well, the subject also turns to the huge naval victory, it is far less known that the English would end up sending an armada of their own to Spain following the defeat. And in that case, the Spanish repulsed the English. At the end of the day, the Anglo-Spanish War ended in a deadlock. We're going to talk about the ultimate importance of the English victory, both in the battle and the outcome of the war itself. We are going to begin today by looking at the causes of the war. And when you're looking at the causes of the Anglo-Spanish War, there are three primary points of contention that deserve our attention the most. These causes are religion, English privateering, and the English involvement with the Dutch rebels in the Netherlands. We will begin by looking at the religious conflict between the English and the Spanish. We discussed in our last episode the tension between Philip II and England following the death of Mary I, and especially when it became clear that Elizabeth was not going to agree to a marriage with Philip. Philip continued to push for the English crown to return to the Catholic Church, something that the Protestant Elizabeth continued to resist. 
From the point of view of the Spanish, at least publicly, religion was the primary reason for the conflict. Pope Sextus V allowed the Spanish Armada to be viewed as a crusade, which opened up additional funding for it. It was the Pope who gave Philip II the papal authority to overthrow Elizabeth in the first place. And beyond that, the Pope offered the men going on the Armada an indulgence. An indulgence was a grant by the Church that would reduce punishment for certain types of sin. I'll discuss the use of indulgences much more next time when we take a look at the religious scene in Europe in the 16th century. For the Spanish, it was critical that this not be seen as a war of conquest, but rather a war to end the ongoing heresy in England. The Spanish had hoped that the English Catholics would rise up and join in the fight, something that would never happen if the English Catholics felt that they were in the middle of a Spanish conquest. And remember, in 1570, Pius V had excommunicated Elizabeth. In the eyes of the Spanish, the war was just. They were fighting for the rights of Catholics in England who were under the rule of a heretical queen. It was a crusade to return the rule of God back to England and dispose of Elizabeth, and more importantly, her Protestant rule, once and for all. Beyond the stated religious reasons for the conflict, there was also the issue of English privateering. Privateering is an act whereby a merchant ship acts under a letter of mark, which gives that person the ability to act as though they are at war on behalf of the monarch. The privateer is allowed to attack foreign ships and even capture them as the spoils of war. A privateer really is walking a very fine line between being a mercenary and a pirate. During this era, there is no privateer more famous than Sir Francis Drake. Francis Drake was born in Devon, England in the early 1540s. Drake would begin his career at sea in 1560, traveling with Sir John Hawkins to the Americas for the first time in 1563. Drake and Hawkins would attack the Portuguese settlements in Africa, capture their slaves, and would sail to the Americas to sell the captured slaves to the Spanish. It was on his third trip to the Americas that this activity nearly got Drake killed when Spanish ships attacked. Though he survived, possibly by swimming for his life, Drake would always hold a grudge against the Spanish for the defeat. Throughout his career, Drake was a constant problem for the Spanish. Known to the Spanish as El Drake, or The Drake, Francis Drake made a career of raiding Spanish ships and stealing gold and silver and other goods. Now, if this sounds a whole lot like piracy, that's because that's basically what this is. The Spanish viewed Drake as a pirate, and he had a very hefty sum on his head. The English, on the other hand, viewed him as a hero. In 1581, Elizabeth knighted Francis Drake. To the Spanish, Drake and the English privateers posed a real threat to the economic interests of Spain. Drake would cement his legacy during the Spanish Armada as one of the primary leaders of the Great Battle. While religion was the publicly stated cause of the war, and privateering was the economic reason, the English involvement in the Netherlands was the political impetus for the conflict. Spain had long been dealing with revolt in the Netherlands, an area that was then controlled by the ruling family of Spain, the Spanish Habsburgs. The revolt began in the middle of the 1560s. This revolt was led by the Protestant forces in the Netherlands against the Catholic rulers. This was the conflict that Elizabeth had long tried to keep England out of. Now recall from our last episode that Philip in 1584 had agreed to finance the Catholic League in France. This represented a serious problem for Elizabeth, as an alliance between the French and the Spanish was a nightmare situation for her. 
With all the existing religious strife in England, the last thing she would want to have happen is for the Spanish and the French to form an alliance that would openly oppose her. Elizabeth reacted by agreeing to the Treaty of Nonsuch, which allied the English with the Dutch rebels. This alliance does several things for Elizabeth. The English continued to feel pressure from threats and pressure from the Spanish to restore the church in England, and Spain had long been trying to get Elizabeth off the throne. You'll remember all the things we talked about last week about Mary. Well, remember that Philip II was connected to the Rodolfi plan years before, and he made no secret of his desire to remove Elizabeth and return the English people to the church. From a practical standpoint, Elizabeth had good reason to support the Dutch in their revolt. It was something that would tie up Spanish resources and help her limit their ability to attack England. Had the Spanish managed to regain control of the Netherlands, it's not difficult to envision that they would have immediately thereafter turned their sights back on toppling Elizabeth. With the resources from that war cleared up, they would have a much better chance of doing that. The English involvement in the Netherlands would prove to be the last straw for Philip, and would prove to be the ultimate cause of the Anglo-Spanish War. The most famous battle by far of the Anglo-Spanish War, and the one that we're going to focus on for the rest of today, is the defeat of the Spanish Armada. It is important, however, to realize that this is only a single battle in a much larger war. The Anglo-Spanish War lasts for nearly 20 years. The famous Spanish Armada? Well, that's not actually the only armada during the conflict. Despite this, however, it is the defeat of the Spanish Armada that is remembered so well today, and that's what we're going to focus on. On May 28, 1588, the Spanish Armada sailed from Lisbon under the command of the Duke of Medina Sedona, Alonso Perez de Guzman. Guzman was seen in Spanish circles as having a high social standing, competence, and most importantly, he was a devout Roman Catholic, a very important fact in a war that is being portrayed as a crusade. The problem, though, is that Guzman lacked any kind of real military experience, something that he himself recognized and attempted to bring to the attention of the king through a letter. It's unclear if Philip II ever actually saw this letter, and regardless if he did, Guzman was his man. When the Armada left port, there were a total of 130 ships. Almost immediately, the Armada encountered trouble with bad weather. The weather meant that by the time the Armada actually approached the channel, they had seen their forces reduced by several ships and stood approximately at 124 ships. The Spanish Armada was a huge force for its era. In addition to the 130 ships that sailed from Lisbon, the Armada consisted of 8,000 sailors and approximately 19,000 ground troops prepared for the invasion of England. These numbers do not include troops that were waiting for transportation in the Spanish Netherlands under the Duke of Parma, who we're going to talk about momentarily. Of the 130 Spanish ships, approximately half were ships of war, the rest being the massive support structure that was going to be necessary for the invasion. The departure of the Armada from Lisbon was a surprise to nobody. The Spanish had let the ships leave with much fanfare, as the planned invasion of England was again being portrayed as a crusade against the Protestants in England. The Spanish strategy was more so based on the overwhelming force that they were deploying. In addition to the nearly 19,000 troops that they left with, the Spanish were planning to pick up an additional 20 to 30,000 troops under the Duke of Parma. All told, the Spanish were anticipating a force of nearly 50,000 men. That is an absolutely massive 
force for that era. Interestingly enough, the English actually had the larger fleet at the time of the battle with nearly 200 ships. But despite the fact that the English outnumbered the Spanish fleet 200 to 130, the Spanish outgunned the English by nearly 50%. Furthermore, there is absolutely no question that at that time, the Spanish possessed the most technologically advanced ships of the day, light years ahead of the English fleet. The English, for their part, had a force numbering approximately 15,000 troops, with their defenses being led by Sir Francis Drake and Lord Charles Howard. Howard, by all accounts, was a loyal, loyal advisor to Elizabeth and was popular in her court. It was therefore not surprising in 1581 when Elizabeth named Howard as the Lord High Admiral of the English Navy. Howard, along with Francis Drake, are the two who rightfully will receive credit for the victory over the Spanish. The Spanish knew they were in a position where they possessed a huge numerical advantage in terms of both troops and firepower. During this time, traditional naval warfare is very different than how we currently think of it. Today, when we think of naval warfare, we imagine the great battles during World War II, where heavily armored battleships fire projectiles several miles from massive cannons. That, however, is not even close to the case in 1588. During this era, naval warfare assumed that there would be close contact battles, which would include the practice of boarding ships and small arms battles on those ships. Had the battle gone that way, the Spanish would have had a decisive advantage over the English and, most likely, would have secured that decisive victory. Now, the plan was for the Spanish to sail up the channel and rendezvous with the Duke of Parma's forces, who were at that point near Dunkirk, then part of the Spanish Netherlands. The Duke of Parma, Alexander Fernice, had been serving as the governor of the Spanish Netherlands since 1578. Unlike his contemporary, the Duke of Medina Sedona, the Duke of Parma was an accomplished military leader. Just years before the Almorada, the Duke of Parma had successfully commanded troops in the siege of Antwerp. With this victory, the southern portion of the Spanish Netherlands had returned to imperial control. Likewise, with the English involved in the Dutch Rebellion in the Netherlands, the Duke of Parma also had first-hand experience fighting the English. Had the connection occurred, it is anticipated that Parma would have provided as many as 30,000 additional troops for the invasion of England. Under the initial plan, the Spanish Armada was going to land in the area around North Foreland in Kent. If you look at a map, North Foreland is a small peninsula in Kent near the mouth of the Thames. Had the Spanish been able to establish a beachhead in this location, it would have been critical for two reasons. First and foremost, it's only about 75 miles from London it would have given the Spanish the ability to land for an invasion that could quickly overwhelm London and hopefully catch Elizabeth off guard. Second, the area is right across the channel from Dunkirk, where Parma and his army were to be waiting. If the Spanish had secured the beach, Parma would have easily been able to sail across the channel with his additional troops to aid the land invasion. And while not something I found in the sources directly, Another advantage of this location is that had the Spanish gained control of the coast in Kent, they would have had access to the Thames. This would have provided the Spanish with the ability to more easily move supplies from the Armada along the river and resupply troops should they reach London. Again, this is not something that I really saw in the sources, however, it makes sense based on the location of the landing. The English, for their part, understood that with the large disadvantage in manpower, a landing on the mainland of England would be catastrophic. The English instead were in a position where they needed to stop the armada before a landing could be made. 
After leaving Lisbon, the Armada struggled to make it north due to weather. Despite leaving in May, it wouldn't be until July 19th that the Armada was first sighted south of the Scilly Islands. The English had made attempts to go out and meet the Spanish fleet, however, much as the weather was the bane of the Spanish at this time, it was also causing the English problems. The original plan for the English was to dispatch their fleet and try to destroy the Spanish Armada in Coruna while it resupplied for the battle. This wasn't a terrible plan by any means. The English had reports that the Spanish were struggling north due to weather, and that damage caused from the weather is what caused them to dock in Coruna in the first place. Likewise, the leader of the English fleet, Sir Francis Drake, had a history of attacking ships while still in dock, and this is a strategy that has served him very well in the past. In a campaign known to history as Singeing the King of Spain's Beard, Drake took a force to the port of Cadiz, where he burnt the ships in the harbor. This was a major English victory and ultimately caused the delay of the Armada for about a year. The hope was that Drake would be able to repeat the success and strike the Spanish fleet while in dock at Coruna. For the English, however, weather initially caused them as many problems as the Spanish, forcing them to abort the mission and fall back. The English would eventually make their way to Plymouth, where they would instead take up a defensive position. It was a Captain Thomas Fleming that had first spotted the Armada off of the Scilly Islands. He quickly made his way back to Plymouth with the news that the Armada was assembling there. The first engagement came on Saturday, July the 20th. The Armada at this time was approaching Dodman Point in southern England. What truly gave the Armada its strength was its formations. The Spanish ships spread out in essentially a crescent shape. At the tip of the crescents were the best fighting ships that Medina Sedona had. The advantage of this shape is that it prevented the English from flanking the Spanish. Should Drake and Howard attempt a flanking maneuver, the ships on the tips of the crescents would be in a position to repel them. If the English managed to get around the tips and to the inside of the crescent, where mainly the transportation ships were and the supply ships were, the ships on the tip could easily collapse inward and cut off the English ships. While the English did not have anything close to the rigid formations of the Spanish, nor their technological prowess, they did possess one key advantage. By 1588, the Spanish were an imperial power, and had been at that point for about a hundred years. For the Spanish, there was an advantage to having large ships that could move large numbers of men and supplies back and forth from Spain to the Americas. The Spanish enjoyed favorable winds to and from the Americas, which allowed them to build their ships larger and larger. The English, on the other hand, spent most of their times in the much more treacherous waters of the Channel. Their ships were far smaller than the Spanish ships and often had a much lower head. This allowed the ships to work well in a windward condition. The large Spanish ships were at a decided disadvantage in this area. Their larger ships were far less able to deal with the often unpredictable winds and currents that the Channel gave. This is something that the English understood and dealt with well. Likewise, the Spanish were operating under strict orders, whereas the English were just trying to survive. Juan Martinez de Recalde, the most experienced officer in the Armada, counseled that Medina Sedona should capture Plymouth. Medina Sedona declined based on the orders from Philip II, which forbade any such landing. Apparently, Philip II had given Medina Sedona explicit orders that he was not to enter an English port until he reached North Foreland. This lack of flexibility on the part of the Spanish meant that real-world battle conditions largely became a non-factor in the planning and were ignored. This lack of situational tactics would limit the Armada's effective force. Drake and Howard 
also agreed with recalled that the most logical point of landing would have been in Plymouth. This is what Howard and Drake assumed as well, leading to the first engagements. The English understood that they were at a decided disadvantage in firepower and manpower against the Armada. While the traditional form of warfare was still to board ships and fight a shooting war that way, the English were well aware that they had no hopes of defeating the Spanish in this method. Instead, the English made use of hit-and-run style attacks. Instead of attempting to board a ship, the English would come in, inflict some minor damage, quickly turn and run away. The faster, more maneuverable English ships gave them an advantage in this. And Drake and Howard both understood that close action or anything prolonged would expose them to the full might of the Armada. Likewise, the Spanish, under their strict orders, simply kept marching up the channel. By the end of the first battle, several things had become clear on both sides. The Spanish, at this point, were concerned with the speed and the agility of the English fleet. However, the English still faced the problem that the ships of the Armada were light years ahead of theirs. Despite a day of fighting where the English largely were able to stick to their plan, they had really proved nothing more than a nuisance for the Armada. They inflicted minimal damage and didn't do anything to slow or stop the Spanish fleet. Many of the successes that the English had were not even of their own doing. One of the main Spanish ships, the San Salvador, suffered a massive explosion that blew the top of the ship off. When it became clear that the San Salvador was sinking, the Spanish abandoned it. The English would later capture the damaged vessel and claim it as a great victory. Another similar situation played out when two Spanish ships collided with each other. Again, the English took this as their own victory, despite really having nothing to do with it. Well, obviously, these are good things for the English and they're happy they happened. These successes really don't actually have anything to do with the actions of the English Navy, but rather the mistakes of the Spanish fleet and conditions out of the control of either Navy. And this is how the first several engagements of the Armada went. Medina Sedona kept his ships in their crescent formation and continued to march up the channel. Howard and Drake kept attacking the fleet, but failed to cause any real damage. And while they were an annoyance, they simply did not have the firepower necessary to overwhelm the Spanish. The Duke of Medina Sedona grew increasingly frustrated by the English battle tactics. Regardless of how much the Spanish ships attempted to get the English to board, neither Drake nor Howard were willing to bite. Again, both men knew that boarding the Spanish ships was a suicide mission. The Spanish still outmanned and outgunned the English significantly. Any type of engagement on this level would have exposed the English weaknesses. During one engagement, the Battle of Portland Bill, Medina Sedona struck his topsails, a traditional invitation for Howard and Drake to board and engage in a gentleman's fight. Drake and Howard again, intelligently, refused, and Drake specifically proceeded to shell and heavily damage the Duke's ship, the San Martin. The ship endured nearly an hour of relentless shelling. Despite serious damage to the ship, it didn't sink. However, it does illustrate the advantage that the English had managed to make for themselves by using their quick hit-and-run tactics and not engaging in traditional naval warfare. By this point, a major weakness of the Spanish army was beginning to show. Despite all the strength of the Armada, the assumption had still been that this would be a traditional naval battle, with boarding being the main weapon as troops try to capture the enemy boats. But this never developed and the fast-moving English ships were proving difficult for the Spanish to hit. This quickly began to lead to Spanish supply shortages, especially when it came to ammunition. And while this was not uniquely a problem for the Spanish, the English were in a slightly better position. The advantage for the English is that they were fighting this battle at home. 
When they ran out of ammunition, they could return home at night and attempt to resupply and make repairs. And while ammunition did begin to run low in England, they did not face the issue of the Spanish. Spain had no options to reload when they ran out of ammunition. Once they were out, they were out. By the end of the Battle of Portlandville, it was clear to everybody involved that the English were not going to be fighting a traditional naval war. For the Duke of Medina Sedona, the best option was to link up with the Duke of Parma for a resupply. 36 hours after the Battle of Portlandville, the forces fought another battle off the Isle of Wight. Francis Drake applied so much pressure that the entire rear of the Armada began to move towards the coast of England. This could have been disastrous for the Spanish as just off the coast of the Isle of Wight is an area of extremely rocky and treacherous land. Drake, having grown up here, knew this area well and had tried to run the armada aground there. Had Drake succeeded, this would have been a decisive blow. Luckily for the Spanish, Medina Sedona was able to get his ships out of there before running aground. The battle off the Isle of Wight was a victory for the English. They had managed to actually cause enough damage to one of the Spanish warships that it had to withdraw from the fighting and make for the nearby French coast. By this point, the armada was having some minor problems. And while they were not looking at a defeat at this point, it was clear that they were going to need to resupply their ammunition. The logical solution was the Duke of Parma. Now, the Duke of Parma was in the area and he could help relieve the beleaguered armada. The problem, however, is that the Duke of Parma was actually not in the area. As it turns out, the Duke of Parma was not having as much success on the ground as he thought he would. Having failed to secure the necessary port, he was in no position to actually help the Armada. Furthermore, his force was down to only about 16,000 men at that point due to much tougher fighting conditions than he had anticipated. Following another engagement that saw more of the English hit-and-run tactics, the decision was made by the Duke of Medina Sonoda to turn toward France, regroup, and resupply. On July 27th, the Armada pulled into the French port of Calais, about 50 miles south of Dunkirk. The English were surprised by the Spanish decision to pull into Calais and drop anchor. Both Drake and Howard immediately recognized this as a key moment in the battle and knew that they needed to strike at the Spanish while anchored. It was unlikely that they would find the Armada so vulnerable again. Dispatches were sent to Henry Seymour, the brother of Jane Seymour, back in Dover that Drake and Howard wanted to send fire ships into the port where the Armada was anchored. Quickly growing impatient and understanding that catching the Spanish in port was a rare and likely short opportunity for attack, Francis Drake himself offered to sacrifice one of his personal ships. Before we go any further, let's answer the question of what is a fire ship? A fire ship is a ship that you reduce to an absolute minimal crew, fill with incendiaries, typically pitch, sail towards an enemy, and light on fire. As the ship burns, it creates chaos as other ships frantically try to get away. If you have watched Game of Thrones, and if you haven't made it to the end of the second season, please take this as a spoiler alert and maybe turn the podcast down for about 10 seconds, you have seen a fire ship during the Battle of the Blackwater when Tyrion sends the ship filled with wildfire out towards Stannis' fleet and blows them all up. That is a pretty good example of what a fire ship is, without the wildfire, of course. The Spanish had experience with fire ships before, and they were absolutely terrified of them, knowing how dangerous and destructive they could be. Late at night on July 28th, the English sent approximately seven to eight fire ships into the port of Calais, with their cannons loaded, meaning they could go off at any time. We have spent much of this episode talking about the incredible discipline of the Spanish Armada, 
the tight crescent formations which had basically reduced the English Navy to nothing more than a serious annoyance. Suddenly, this discipline is gone. Spanish captains panicked and immediately ran back out to sea without any hint of a formation. In the confusion, the Spanish ship, the San Lorenzo, ran aground and was eventually taken prisoner personally by Howard. Two other warships, already damaged from earlier battles, ran aground and were captured by the Dutch. The English smelled blood in the water and immediately pressed their attack. The Battle of Gravelines had begun. By the dawn, the English ships, reinforced by Seymour's fleet in Dover, pressed their attack. From the ships captured earlier by Drake, it had become evident that in order to penetrate the Spanish ships effectively, rounds needed to be fired within 100 yards. This was a very difficult order when the Armada remained in that tight crescent formation. Now, however, the English could get close enough to cause actual damage. For nearly eight hours, the English and the Spanish fought at Gravelines. At the end of the battle, the Armada had only lost five ships. However, the damage to the plans was incalculable. The Spanish had lost all hope of linking up with the Duke of Parma and his army. They had lost their tight formations, and any hope for an invasion was gone. Now, it should be noted at this point that there is no evidence at all that any ship was actually damaged by those English fire ships. Though the English did not know it at the time, the Great Armada had been defeated. Gravelines proved to be the last major engagement of the Spanish Armada. With the damage done, discipline lost, and the hope of linking with Parma now gone, the decision was made to sail up through the North Sea and back to Spain. The return to Spain would prove more costly and treacherous than the actual battles had been. A combination of weather, lack of supplies, and disease absolutely ravaged the Spanish forces. Between dying of starvation, disease, drowning at the hands of the Irish as they swam to shore, the Spanish lost far more from the conditions of the North Atlantic than they did during the engagements with the English. When they finally returned to Spain in September of 1588, the once mighty armada had only 60 to 70 ships left, thousands dead and dying, and absolutely nothing to show from it. Had the armada successfully landed, the Spanish would have faced multiple obstacles. In this perfect world scenario, the Duke of Parma would have made it over to the landing point in Kent and would have had marched on London, and hopefully would capture Elizabeth while still at court. This entire mission would have been aided by the detractors of Elizabeth and Catholics throughout England, rising up and joining the cause to expel the Queen and restore the Catholic faith. It appears, however, though, that Philip II remained more pessimistic about this outcome coming to fruition. Philip recognized that there were several problems with his optimistic plan. First, the plan of capturing Elizabeth at court was unlikely to ever be a reality. Unless the Spanish were able to land, relatively unopposed, it should be assumed that the Spanish invaders were going to be met with heavy resistance. While the numbers of men and firepower was going to be a Spanish advantage, Elizabeth likely would have had time to get out of London. Beyond that, it was no sure thing that the Tudor enemies were going to join the fight. While the Scottish certainly were not fans of Elizabeth's religious policies, and there were many Catholics in England who wanted to see a return to the church, it is far less clear that they were going to want to take up arms against the crown. Furthermore, especially for Catholics inside of England, the idea of joining and supporting with a foreign Spanish army to topple the otherwise stable government was likely a less than ideal situation. While there were deep issues of religion with the crown, the idea that the English were going to want to support any kind of an enemy occupation of the home islands remains dubious. For the English Catholics, the question was always present about what would happen should the English ultimately repel the attack. 
While much of the earlier religious tolerance of Elizabeth had subsided by this time, outright violent persecution of Catholics was still not really a thing in England. Should the Catholics support the Spanish and Elizabeth survive, the consequences could result in persecutions that the Catholics sought to avoid. Remember, we're not that long after Mary I had led violent purges of Protestants. Catholics did not wish to see a similar style persecution come for them. Philip II, recognizing these issues, approached the situation with a backup plan of what he believed to be the more realistic victory. Philip II was hoping that, should the invasion fail, hopefully the Spanish troops could place enough pressure on the English to force them into a favorable peace. This peace would have included three main points. First and foremost, the English would have to give full religious toleration to Catholics in England. Second, the English would have to end their support of the Dutch rebels. And going a step further, it is believed that Philip II would have wanted England to give up their holdings in the Netherlands to the Spanish. Lastly, and least important, Spain probably would have sought some kind of an indemnity for the war. Of course, this never really happened. While Philip remained pessimistic of a complete overthrow of Elizabeth, the failure of their armada to land does not appear to be something that was even on his radar as possible. The Anglo-Spanish War lasted from 1585 until 1604. While the defeat of the Spanish Armada was the single largest engagement of the war, it was far from the only battle. The English would launch an armada of their own, which was repulsed by the Spanish. By the time the war ended in 1604 with the Treaty of London, the overall result was a stalemate. Neither the English nor the Spanish had seen any territorial gains in the war. The Spanish agreed to end their attempts to restore the Catholic Church in England and respect the right of the Protestants, where the English, for their part, agreed to stop supporting the Dutch rebels in the Netherlands. The Dutch would continue to fight their war until 1648. Overall, the end of the Anglo-Spanish War saw little in terms of any actual change for either the Spanish or the English. It is interesting to mention that the end of the war would not feature either Philip II or Elizabeth but rather Philip III and James I, both men who were anxious to end the costly affair. However, despite the fact that the war ended essentially with two sides returning to what had been the status quo, the defeat of the Spanish Armada is often portrayed as a critical turning point in Western history. Is that the case, however? Was the defeat of the Armada the catalyst that drove the English to becoming a colonial power? While the war ended in what essentially amounts to a stalemate, the victory that the English did secure is that the Spanish agreed to stop interfering in the religious matters of England. This finally brings closure to what had been a major issue for the English people over the past 70 years. At the same time, there needs to be some questioning over the importance of the outcome of the English victory over the Armada. While in that particular battle the English were victorious, this was not such a devastating defeat that it caused the Spanish to cease their war effort. In fact, the war would continue on for another 17 years following the defeat of the Armada. The English did attempt to counter Armada in 1589, a mission which was led by Sir Francis Drake. However, the English Armada ended up being repulsed by the Spanish and saw the English suffer very heavy losses. It is likewise often forgotten that the Spanish Armada we talked about today was the first of three Spanish Armadas during the conflict that sought to make a landing on the English coast. Much as the case in the first Armada, the other two attempts to invade the English mainland fail. In the case of the second Armada, the storms had been so serious that the Armada failed to even reach the channel. Again, like in the first Armada, the weather proved to be the decisive factor for the English victories. And this goes to show that despite the loss of the first Armada, the Spanish still maintained a very formidable fleet.
In this vein, the defeat of the Spanish Armada was far from the end of the conflict. Where the Armada was a huge English victory, however, was in the area of propaganda. The Spanish Armada was viewed as a crusade. The Spanish believed that they had got on their side and that their mission was righteous and just. When a mission is so built up and then so completely defeated by a smaller force, questions are going to begin to arise about what God's will actually was. Even if the argument is made that it was the weather that did most of the heavy lifting and defeating the Armada, that goes even more to show God's will was that the Spanish should not succeed. This is equally true in England. To them, God has made his will known. Beyond that, for Elizabeth, the victory was huge. Not only did it help relieve some of the religious pressures that had dogged her reign, but it was a huge propaganda victory for her personally. The small English navy had defeated the mighty Spanish Armada. For the confidence of the English, regardless of what it's worth, there could have hardly been a bigger victory for them. If the Spanish were left questioning what God's will really was, the English Protestants were left with no doubt. The victory over the Armada would go a long way towards establishing England as a world power. The English, now on a much more stable footing, found themselves in a position where colonial expansion did become a possibility. Likewise, at least during the years of the war, the prospect for the English of holding a North American colony seemed a daunting task, as the Spanish at this time would have been a constant threat in North America. And while the Spanish were still a threat, the English had established themselves as a major power. The defeat of the Armada would have a lasting impact on the state of naval warfare. It marked the beginning of the end of a long era where boarding was a common practice. Even during the Battle of Gravelines, there were reports of English and Spanish troops shooting at each other with muskets from their respective ships. Following the defeat of the Armada, new and innovative battle tactics begin to appear as nations learn the importance of mobility. Ultimately, the defeat of the Spanish Armada holds a unique place in history. It is the weather more than the English Navy that defeated the Armada. It is a battle that, while devastating for the Spanish, was not so damaging to end the war. The Spanish would remain a dominant world power for another half century after the defeat of the Armada. The decline of the Spanish has virtually nothing to do with the defeat of the Spanish Armada or the Anglo-Spanish War in any way. The true legacy of the English victory is that it was the first move on the board that would begin to establish the English Navy as the dominant naval power in the world, a banner that they would hold at least through the early 20th century. The end of the Anglo-Spanish War put England in a place where they were able to join the other powers in establishing their North American colonies. Next time, we are going to turn our attention to the religious question in Europe. As this episode and the one on politics show, religion is the force driving nearly everything in the 16th century. So, in two weeks' time, I will be back and we will dive in and examine the religious state of Europe in the years before the settlement of the North American colonies. Thank you for listening and have a great week.